You're listening to Booth One. Frank, episode 101 is here, and Yikes. I'm happy to have you back in the co-host chair. Gary Zabinski, Frank Taranjo, your hosts, treating you to another Booth One broadcast spectacular. Frank, we're not particularly a sports-oriented podcast, as you and our listeners well know. True. But I'm worried about our cubbies, our precious cubbies. Yeah, at this point, and who knows where they'll be when this actually airs, but uh, they're not doing great. It's not over yet, but yeah. uh, it's not it's not promising. This leads me into our show business portion of the podcast. Yeah. You saw a show recently at the Royal George Theater. What was it called? It was called Miracle. It's in the big theater, and I guess it's been playing since May, and I guess doing quite well. But no, it is about the Cubs winning the World Series, which for those of us who've been around for a while, it was pretty much a miracle. But it follows this family, and their sort of trials and tribulations are sort of Cub fans. But you know that's you've got to be a, a one of the hardy lot kind of people to be a Cub fan over the years, and it leads up to that final uh, seventh game when they actually won. And so. it's an actual musical. It is a musical. Yeah, book cute music. Numbers. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Michael Mahler did the music. I, I believe, think so. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Erica, you're saying yes. Yes. Thank Michael you. Did, did you Have see you the show? I did not. I read the original book of the musical and uh-huh. saw some of the original music and. Um, no, Bill Marowitz and Jason Brett, both of whom are part, you know, creators. I'm sort of an ambivalent Cubs fan, so you know, I'm, I'm sort of a you know tra- East Coast transplant. I wish and, I was. Uh-huh. So uh, I try not to. <laughs> yeah, with all the theater I need to see, I figured that one was was probably not one I, I needed to to go see right now. Unfortunately, yeah, Time probably is precious. so. <laughs> well, it's fun. We were talking a little bit earlier amongst ourselves about who is this show's audience and who is that show's audience. This has a real specific mm-hmm. audience. If you are a Cub fan, you will love it. If you are a St. Louis Cardinals fan, probably not so much. You probably wouldn't even go. You follow this family and you experience their joy as you felt it You know when the Cubs actually did do the impossible, pull off the miracle. And they do some really cool things with projections. They must have gotten permission from yes, the Yes, from mag- Ricketts. Yeah, mm-hmm. they must have mm-hmm. because they're showing scenes from it. You know, the people are watching it. There's, you know, about seven or eight different screens behind them where, you know, they're showing the scenes and uh, that final out. And so you're sort of watching it and reliving it and, and going along with this family. Yeah. So it was a good time. People were wearing their Chris Bryant shirts and T-shirts and almost kind of like going to a game. Did and you dress up? I did not. I didn't realize you were, you know, that was it part was of the thing. thing. I just <laughs> it was encouraged. Went. Yeah, a friend had gotten tickets. She said, do you want to go? I'm like, sure. It's and then, no Rocky Horror show. Right? It, no, well, it's not quite Rocky Horror, but there is some dress up to it. <laughs> and the music deal. was good? I mean, they, I didn't walk out humming anything, and it's not like, oh my God, I have to get the CD. But the songs were appropriate at the times, and the, peop- the performers were very performers good. Are, yeah, the performers are all really top-notch musical yeah, theater they and were. actors in Chicago. Well, thanks for that uh, thumbnail review of the show. I'm glad you went to see it. You've heard her voice already. I'm going to bring on our guest in the booth today. It's a pleasure for me to welcome my friend, Erica Daniels. Erica, welcome. Happy Sunday. Let me tell our listeners a little bit about you, and then you can fill in the blanks. (laughs) Erica Daniels is the executive director of the Victory Gardens Theater right here in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Before joining Victory Gardens, Erica was president of Second City Theatricals, where she shepherded the remount of The Art of Falling with Hubbard Street Dance Company, Second City's collaboration with Slate on 
unelectable you. <laughs> the Second City's completely unbiased political review. Yeah. And the Second City's Guide to America at the Kennedy Center. Prior to that, Erica was the associate artistic director at the Steppenwolf Theater Company. She joined the company in is 2001 mm-hmm. as casting director and director of the school at Steppenwolf. And you did the original casting for Manhattan Theater Club's Broadway production of Airline Highway. Yes. Mm. The Broadway production of Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf mm. with Tracy Letts and Amy Morton, yes. right? She also cast the original production of August Osage County. Wow. Also cast for Broadway, the National Theater of London and the Sydney Theater Company and the Broadway production of Superior Donuts. Oh, right. I forgot oh. about that one. <laughs> ah, well, this is a walk down memory lane. Are, are you currently on the board with the League? Yes. League I, of uh, Chicago Theaters, and you hold a degree in performance studies from Northwestern University uh-huh. right up the street here. Tell us a little bit about Victory Gardens. Let's let the listeners know what the mission statement of Victory Gardens is. Victory Gardens is, we're in our 45th season, actually. Wow. So we've been in Chicago 45 years. And the focus has primarily been new new work, new plays, new musicals, or Chicago premieres. So everything you see at Victory Gardens is either developed at Victory Gardens as a new work, or it's a second production, usually. Mm-hmm. I think the work reflects the demographic of, of sh- what Chicago looks like and feels like and what our nation looks and feels like in, in current times. So we're a leader in diversity and inclusion and accessibility. That's very important to the institution and the work that's on the stage and the artists that are doing the work on and off the stage. We really strive to uh, create conversations about the topics of our day and create a civic a civic conversation and create some social justice impact with some of the work we're doing. We do five performances a year. We also have a very robust... Um, five productions. Five productions. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, we'd be gone if we did five... Per- my God, five performances a year. I'm actually done How for do the year. How do you keep the lights I'm done on. for the season. Yeah. I mean, oh my gosh. Uh, five productions a year that we produce. We have resident theater companies that use our smaller space. We have a number of educational outreach with CPS and adult mentorship programs. Also, we have a public program series. So after... Every performance we do an afterwards, but we also do about four to six more amplified public programs surrounding mm-hmm. each show where we invite panelists and experts. We're very deeply involved in, in the community, not not just the Lincoln Park community. Obviously, that's helpful for you know business, but we put ourselves um, in conversation with communities on the, on the west and south side as well in trying to create um, some change in sustainability for arts organizations and, and service organizations in those areas of our city, too. Victory Gardens has been in Lincoln Park for quite a number of years, but a few years ago, remind me of the year that you moved up the street and took over the old Biograph Theater. Mm-hmm. Technically, the, the Victory Gardens opened in the Biograph in 2006. We took over the building like 2003, you know, that was when we Has it we really been 13 it. years? Yes. Oh yes, God. it has. It seems like yeah. yesterday. Trust, Trust me, when, with, the, with the roof and the tuck pointing and the light board and the soundboard <laughs> breaking on a weekly basis, it, uh, I can tell you it was 2006. It was 13 years. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the ED does, That's right? what the ED does. She finds out what's broken this week and mm-hmm. tries to no. go. How and to tries to go figure we, out how to fix can, it. Can we fix that? <laughs> Do we need to kick that down yeah. the can, can down the road a bit? Yeah. Frank, you remember this a number of years ago. Victory Gardens received the Tony Award yeah. as best yeah. regional 
Theater Company. Yeah, yeah. Outstanding regional yes, theater company. Yes, I am not going to remember the date on that. That was, um, you know, we've had two artistic directors in I'm our gonna time. I'm going to say 2001. That sounds about right, because yeah. we had, um, it was during the time of our founding artistic director, Dennis Zotchuk, that, and right. it was right, it was after the Good, so the Goodman was the first theater in Chicago to receive that, and then it was Victory Gardens, And since then, Steppenwolf has also won that Steppenwolf award. has, Chicago Shakes has, mm-hmm. and Looking Glass has. And Looking Glass. Wow. Yeah. I mean, how great is that, that we have that many you know, yeah. theaters here that have won a Tony Award. Yeah. <laughs> you started your career in the arts as a casting agent. Is that right? It is. I mean, I really started as a casting intern, <laughs> if I'm going to be honest <laughs> Didn't with we you, all? Gary. Yeah. Yeah. I, I started unpaid. Back in the day, you, you had to do that. I interned with the producer Manny Eisenberg. Oh, okay. I do for, know. I know who that years. is. Yeah. So sure. Yeah. Very, very well mm-hmm. known. This was back in the late seventies right. when he was extremely busy. Yes. Had four or five productions on Broadway right. at the same time, and he was also a general manager. So Got they it. had other companies. He general managed That's all of so the chorus funny. line tours. Right. So I had wow. a I had a varied and wonderful experience uh, with yeah. him. Maybe you can explain a little bit what a casting director does, because people think, oh, the director just picks whoever he wants, but there's a couple of other steps involved. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Since that was a big part of my background, I'd like to think I had some right. influence on some Yeah, exactly. Um, people need to know that. I spent many years at Steppenwolf um, as their casting person, about 15. And I, I always say that I think the casting director, obviously it's that person's, it's their job to know, I think, everybody in the city who's coming up, you know, the, the, the folks that are the, the, the key players in the city and to know who's going to be right for certain roles. It's important in this moment, um, in this political moment, that we're seeing representation on the stages. And by that, I don't just mean in terms of race. I think we're in a moment where uh, people uh, are expecting to see gender nonconforming actors on the role, people who are, you know, whose stories are being told playing the actors who are, whose stories are being told on the stage. So it's, it's a really important moment for casting directors because it, there's no excuse for not seeing everyone. They're, that's sort of the moment we're in. And I think uh, casting directors, the job is, it is about figuring out the taste and type of actor that your director usually is most interested in working with because you can see patterns. So it's usually the first time you work with a director is the most challenging. And then you, you know, throughout the whole casting process, you're sitting next to somebody, you're hearing their thoughts, they're, they're getting more familiar with the role during the audition process. They're starting to learn things about the role during the audition process. They might change their mind about how they're envisioning a role as you're auditioning. It's our job to lay out the full buffet, I like to say. <laughs> and then sort of to steer the director into into what their choices are. And by that, I don't mean changing their mind. I mean, as you're hearing what's important to, artistically to a director, letting them know how you feel different actors will achieve what it is they want. So a director Because might, you're f- familiar because with you're the more, actor. You might be more familiar. Uh-huh. You, you also might have history with somebody to be able to say to a director, you know, I think if you gave them this note you're going to see that from them. Uh-huh. Um, and so I would call them back and just give them, let me give them that adjustment if they feel like they're not getting something from an actor mm-hmm. that you know the actor can do with their eyes shut. And then, of course, with um, with some of our bigger spaces, you know, Victory Garden, Steppenwolf, there's ratios of how many equity to non-equity, the oh, union right. that you you have to put on your stage. And so sometimes you're, you're saying to a director, like, you can have this combination or this combination, 
this combination doesn't get us enough equity actors and this combination might is more expensive than we budgeted for the show. Uh-huh. So let's talk about what we gain and lose with each of these actors for each of these roles. And that's information you've brought to the that's table. That's information then, you, yeah. yeah, I bring. And then the hope is that I, whoever is casting your show remembers the people that you, you know, I, I know I've had so many moments with certain directors that to be able to remember that, you know, Amy Morton, for example, might love an actor she sees but that she doesn't feel they're right for the role we just called them in for. But then it would be my job to say a year later, if we were directing another play, this is that guy you saw Remember and loved. Remember that guy. Yeah. And so that she also has the, the knowledge to be like, oh, right, I did like, I liked playing with that guy. And oh, good to see you again, as opposed to nice to meet you. Mm-hmm. So it's, it is the job that can make an actor most feel comfortable in a room and to do their best work in front of a director. And so I think it's, I think it's a really, it's an important, important Well, it's like you've role. expanded, you've expanded the brain of the director because they're thinking about all kinds of other things too. You're just thinking about the casting. Just thinking about that. And most times also directors are casting a show that they're not working on yet. They've given, uh-huh. they haven't dug into the text yet. It's a year, 18 months in advance. Mm-hmm. And so for the director, they might be working on an, another project, directing by day while you're doing your auditions at night. And so they haven't fully spent as much time maybe with the text as the actor might think they have. (laughs) And so it's, you know, it's a complicated negotiation of making sure they see what they need to see to put together the ensemble that they most want to work with. Because most theaters have four, you know, four weeks rehearsal. You have this, you know, it's fast. And you want to make sure that the people you put in that room are going to get to that end point together. How many cool. theaters in Chicago would you say engage a casting agent, a casting director, oh. on a sort of a regular basis or even a part-time or what, it's a freelance grown. basis? I mean, it's grown. When I, when I first started in the business, you know, it was Goodman, Shakes, and, and Steppenwolf that had like a full-time casting person, I think. You know, we have one at Victory Gardens who does do other other things as well, and I think that's more typical at the, I would say, the mid-sized theaters. And I think some smaller theaters um, might hire a freelance casting director. And then I think there, I mean, there are a number of young people or just younger than me people who now are do, you know, do casting for storefront theaters or small, you know, mid-sized theaters. I see, you know, there's a Facebook page and things like that. So people are constantly generating ideas among, among. So there's many more now, some of whom I've never met. And I'm just excited that they're out there uh, doing this work in Chicago. Tell our listeners a little bit before your career about where you grew up and what your background is, other than, other than what I noted in the intro. Are, are you Chicago-born? No, I grew up in New Jersey, actually. Uh, what accent? 114. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is how you're identified. <laughs> I grew up in uh, Middletown and Homedale, New Jersey, that have the same exit. So, yes, we moved, like, one town over during high school and uh, got into theater like my sophomore year of high school, that's what like led me to theater as an actor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, I thought I was going to be. Yeah, I went to school for acting. So I, I did the, the, you know, the school plays. I spent a summer at Carnegie Mellon doing a summer intensive in acting right before my senior year, and then came out to Northwestern to study theater and acting. I ended up 
switching majors at Northwestern. So I'm not a theater major. I'm a performance studies graduate. But that basically, um, it was so I could have my cake and eat it too. Um, I didn't really want to do the tech stuff after my freshman year. I was like, I hate sewing and building sets. That just wasn't for me. And yet I really enjoyed the academics more. So they're, they're, the degree I got is sort of like a theater major with a briefcase, is I think how they used to describe us. Because I had to take, <laughs> as opposed to taking like costume design, I had to mm-hmm. take like C-level English classes on like Elizabeth Bishop. And that was just more my thing. I was able to talk my way into acting classes. Back then you could. I don't know how it works today. But it was also at a moment where the performance studies department was just filled with these greats. It was Frank Galati, it was Martha Levy, it was Mary Zimmerman at that point just joining the faculty. It was a, a gentleman named Dwight Conkergood who taught a class about performance and culture and you know opened my eyes to Chicago. He had lived among the, uh, the gangs in Rogers Park for a while and wrote all of these books about it. it was, he was just a genius. And this guy named uh, Leland Roloff, who was like a Jungian professor and all about Greek mythology and archetypes. So for me, being able to take classes, and of course, Carol Simpson Stern ran the department at that point. So it was the department that, like, Lilla Heston, Charles Heston's sister, had formed, you know, 100 years ago, and it was about interpretation of various types of literature. So the understanding of poetry through performance, the understanding of nonfiction through performance, the understanding of fiction through performance, the understanding of drama through performance. So for me, that, that like was an added layer of what I wanted out of my college experience. And it was my first interaction with you know, somebody who became a mentor and very good friend, Martha Levy, because she was getting her PhD at the time. You were associate artistic director at mm-hmm. Steppenwolf with Martha for quite a number of years, right? So I worked, I worked with Martha for 15 years, the last four of which I was the associate artistic director. I maintained oh. my casting work. So I just, they, I, they, I just wouldn't leave. So they just kept giving me more, more work to do, I guess. But that's, that's what happens sure. in nonprofit theater, right? That's right. <laughs> oh, we got this project. Hey, you, what are you, what are you doing between two and four every day? Yeah, that's right. right. No, it was a great, a great privilege and honor to, yeah. to have achieved that in that moment you know I don't think too many casting directors move into associate artistic director modes and so that was a I think it was a great moment for for just everybody that 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 happened so you went to Northwestern and got a degree in performance studies how did you segue that into your internship was that the very first yeah. thing that you did so as in, soon as, like as I graduated agent? I broke my foot I mean I'm not trying to <laughs> yeah it was very dramatic I was bartending which is just ridiculous but I opened up a giant beer cooler and whoever had like stacked the beer the night before had done a very poor job so like <laughs> A million cases of beer just started coming at me, and I fell backwards, and a bunch of beer landed on my left foot. So, um, so I broke my foot like right after graduation. Had you know had these headshots. I was like, and I think back then, I mean now I, now I know actors don't work every day. I think back then I was like, oh my god, if I'm in a cast for five weeks and everybody's working, they're going to get such a head start. I mean that was literally my you know my 21 year old brain was like oh my God, I'm going to be so behind in this industry if I do not get out for auditions this summer. And now, of course, I know that's like, might be every summer. But, you know, back then I didn't, I didn't have a full understanding at all of the scope of how this business worked. I just knew I was going to be in a, a cast for five weeks and therefore I was, you know, I would never work again is basically what my brain said. So I, 
I, I was like, I should get an internship. Like literally that was, I mean, I didn't know what that really meant, but I was like, I should, I should figure out how to work in a casting office. That might be interesting while I have a cast on. <laughs> I was like, I could learn something while I'm in my cast. <laughs> Why not casting? So, I, I mean, I'm not kidding. I just, like, called, like, I looked up casting directors and called a couple, and a woman named Jane Brody said, oh, we are looking for somebody. Can you come in tomorrow, and, and I'll meet you. And I went in, and we talked. And I'm not kidding. The only thing she, I think she asked me to do was print my name and sign my name to make sure it was legible. <laughs> and she was like, great, come in tomorrow. You're hired. And I was like, okay. Um... <laughs> So I did that, I guess I stayed at, at what was then called Jane Brody Casting. I stayed there actually a while. She ended up paying me a weekly stipend because I started working on a theater project for her and became the point person on this project. And so I, she wanted me to see that through. So I stayed there probably till like the end of October, actually. So it ended up being like a four-month internship. And very shortly thereafter, got my first job as a talent agent at a, uh, a place that still exists called Shirley Hamilton, Inc. I, you know, I worked for a number of years in Chicago at a few different talent agencies representing actors for theater, TV, film, print. Um, the industrial corporate market was very big back in the mm. 90s in Chicago. So a lot of industrial work. And, of course, a lot of commercial work. We didn't have as many series back then as we do today. We had uh, Early Edition and Cupid. and So we had, a, like, a few television shows back then. And they did exteriors of ER and things like that. And maybe you'd get, like, a day player, maybe. But it was um, a lot of commercial and an industri- industrial and voiceover. Just, you know, agents in this town sort of represent actors for everything, as opposed to, to New York and L.A., where... They're more specialized, and as an actor, you might have a different agent for commercials than for film than for theater. Here, it's you know, it's a catch-all bucket. I had a lot of energy back then. <laughs> yeah, that was a long time ago. Um, and then, um, and I stayed there until about 2000, early, early, late 99, 2000. I'm not going to remember exactly. And then there was a union strike in Chicago. There was a commercial strike, SAG after the union. And a lot of the work went away. Some agencies closed. And I decided it would be a good time um, maybe to try a different city. I I really did always want to work at a big agency. Like, that had been something I'd always wanted to see what that was. Like a William Morris And that's exactly where I went. Ah. Um, I moved to New York and um, got a job in the theater division at William Morris. I had to, like, start over in many ways as, like, the junior person. And I worked with a, a, a gentleman named George Lane, who people had like you know warned me about that he was a, a, a tough boss, and he was. But we we've, we've remained in contact and uh, friendly to this day because I, I learned so much from him. He's a bit of a legend in the casting yeah, world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he um, you know he represents John Patrick Shanley, and he represented you know Edward Albee at that point, and you know Eve Ensler during the Vagina Monologues heyday, and um, Richard Greenberg, you know, the list went on and on and on of who the Broadway players were. He also represented in that moment, he was the head of the East Coast division of the film, you know, literary film division, too. So that was the moment when, like, Kenneth Lonergan was working on You Can Count on Me, that wonderful independent film. So that was, like, during that moment. And so some, you know, it it was a crossover moment. And, And I think it was a moment where we started to see 
television and movie stars on Broadway and doing theater. It was, mm-hmm. a, it was that moment in time, partially, I think, because of the strike also. People were nervous there was going to be a motion picture strike next. And so actors started, like, dipping their toes into theater again, and people realized, oh, I can do I can do this. I can sort of, you know, do all forms. And that was also the moment where, you know, the brilliant Mary Louise Parker was doing proof off Broadway and moving it. They were moving proof to Broadway. And so it was um, a, a really great learning experience for me to see how, how a negotiation like that happens for an actor in terms of like a life-changing moment where you're going off Broadway to Broadway and, they were trying very hard to create some parody on Broadway between salaries of men and women and also a straight play versus a musical where, you know, you really do see these disparities still. So that was just a fascinating, fascinating moment. What a great time yeah. in the mm-hmm. industry to be doing that. You eventually gave that up in New York to come back to Chicago. Is that right? Yeah, I think I, I think there were a couple of factors. I think one, it was just a life factor. New York is, you know, I went to New York later than I would recommend going to New York unless you really do have savings and wealth and um, <laughs> and you can see the trajectory more quickly. I think as a, you know, as a junior agent, there, it, you're, it's a lot of work and you're not making a lot of money. And I was like 34, 35 when I was doing that. And that was difficult. Um, having lived in Chicago and had like a, you know, a one bedroom apartment was such a luxury. And then I was in New York and, you know, the, the apartment was the size of this, you know, table we're sitting around Gary and the rent was like 1800 a month. But, you know, I was not like living the Sarah Jessica Parker sex in the city dream. I was like, Oh my God, when will, when will I see the light? Um, and you know, and I was like 35 borrowing money from my father, you know, it was like, Oh my and, you know, he was like, when, when's this dream going to, like, you know, how's this experiment going? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and I think, you know, probably I would have seen some payoff in a few years. It's just, it's a very, it is a hard city to live in unless you really have really the means to live there. Or like you said, if you're really you've come, young. Yeah. And if you've come from, like, not having to do that. So I, I think it was that. I think also I had a couple of very close friends who were in Chicago at the time who, you know, called and were like, oh, you know, the casting director of Steppenwolf's leaving and we really think you'd be good for the job because now you have the background of the playwrights they use and you know the actors and da-da-da. And I guess that's sort of just my, my personality has been like, oh, that sounds interesting. I should investigate that. Um, and that's sort of what led me down down that investigatory path, which led me back to Chicago. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's quite the journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I spent some yeah. years in New York, about a dozen years through the 80s and you're right you've got to have the resources for it but you're also intrigued by steppenwolf it wasn't a slouch kind of deal that's like a premiere chicago it was for me it was um there was something very intriguing about being back at a at a theater institution Uh i had i i was looking to think about that as my next thing Mm -hmm. that was a really i think an incredible moment of steppenwolf you know they were they were performing on Broadway and Cuckoo's Nest right in that moment. So it was a it was uh-huh. a big it was a moment where they were really on people's radar. You know you knew that that it was going to be a steady job. It wasn't William Morris, but they weren't going anywhere. Yeah, and it brought me back to working. I think with actors, which was something that I really did did had missed. And again, it was um there was something at that point that the artistic team at Steppenwolf, you know, for me was just it was a very special team. It was. 
you know, obviously Martha was leading the place and then Michael Gennaro was her executive director partner and he's just, he's remained a very close friend. Kurt Columbus, who was the associate artistic director, who's now a Trinity rep, was a close friend, Ed Sobel. I mean, it was such a honor to Tim Evans, who's now the executive director of Northlight, was there and a woman named Afia Parsons was his right hand. I mean, it was a very special special time to be there in that moment. So I was very, I'm very fortunate. Coming back here very easy. Yeah, it was not <laughs> difficult. Yeah, yeah. And I had given away, you know, all my furniture basically for my studio so I could actually live <laughs> pretty simply. I had, no, I, I had no furniture but a bed and a couch and a television. So that's all that fit. That's all that York. fit in New York. So I really, until I had a couple of years that I didn't really have to think about life. I could just like focus on what was next. So easy to move. Yeah, it was, it was really easy to move. I like packed a car and came home. <laughs> Frank, as you know, we do a segment called Good Times and Bum Times on this mm. program every yeah, once in a while. We do. In this week's Good Times, it's a good time for modern families. You know why? Why? Two gay male penguins at the Berlin Zoo adopted an abandoned egg and will hatch a chick in early September. Oh, really? Skipper and Ping, <laughs> <laughs> who are inseparable, are taking turns to keep the egg warm. Oh. I think that says a lot about where we are in our society today, that two male penguins can actually hatch a chick. Yeah, I had not heard about that. <laughs> well, no, this is why you listen this into Booth pressing, One. This is pressing news. Yes, this is, is definitely pressing news. In our bum times, it's a... <laughs> where, to, where to begin? Yeah, <laughs> really. Uh, it's a bum time for hitting the high notes after a 65-year-old Chinese man was hospitalized with a collapsed lung following a marathon karaoke session in which he hit some very high notes. Do you do karaoke? I have been known to karaoke and clear a room. <laughs> and not get hospitalized thereafter. And not, yeah, I've never, I've never. Do you do karaoke on the cruise ships when you do the cruises? <laughs> I did it once. Um, How'd that go? I was singing back up to a friend of mine who was singing Love Shack, and then when I came off, my friends were all there. They're like, "You are so brave." That was my review. Well, you know, you know, I use that anytime I see a show. Well, now, I'm, now I'm really outing myself, so I'll never be able to use it again. But those closest to me know that when I like truly do not know what to say. That is the expression I use. That was so brave. You are very brave. Your actors must really trust you. Like when I don't know what to say to an actor or director, brave is, you are, that is so brave. And I once actually like told somebody I was going to say that. Like when I created it, there were two of us walking out of the theater together. This was many, many years ago. And we were like, what are we going to say tomorrow when we see this person? Like, that was really not good. <laughs> and I was like, I know what I'm going to say. That was very brave, which I did as soon as I saw them the next morning. And then this other colleague who I'd been with came in and go, I used it. I used the brave thing, <laughs> FYI. And I said, I used the brave thing. What do you mean you stole my line? Does it always work? Do people buy this? Well, you have to... It's about I the tone, Gary. That was, was not You have to really it. look them into the eye, and you have to just, you know, that was really brave. Your actors must really trust you. Or where did you, how did you get there? I mean, you have to enhance and nuance. It's tone. It's just your, your being authentically in, dishonest. Yeah, your degree in performance <laughs> studies is yes. showing. It's where, my, it's, acting, it's it's where, where my acting gets used. My friends were much more transparent. I knew that meant I completely <laughs> sucked. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's also a wonderful article that I think you guys gave me from Stephen Sondheim about how on opening night, and your friends are there, your job as a friend is to say, you loved it. Doesn't matter what you thought, you loved it. Later on, there'll be time for that, but 
you loved it absolutely. on opening night. That's absolutely. it. Absolutely. To friends, to family, whomever. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yes. Erica, what are your most significant challenges as an executive director mm, in yeah. this social and political environment? What do you find most challenging day to day, week to week, month to month? Uh, Victory Gardens is a highly well-respected theater company, and you've Tony been winning. extremely <laughs> successful over the years. You said 45 years. What are you facing as challenges uh, in, in this environment these days? I think, and I would say I think Everybody in the performing arts are facing so many of the same challenges. People in theater, dance, opera, and symphonies, are, we're all facing the decline of audiences. It's incredibly challenging, and also it's just worrisome. Um, I don't know if we'll ever see the you know the return of the numbers of people that have you know engaged in those activities as we once did. I think um, you know subscriptions as we once knew it has been gone about a decade now. And so as, you know, the baby boomer generation leaves us, new and younger generations don't, don't purchase ticket, pa- their ticket pattern purchase is completely different than the older generation. They're, they want to Netflix their, you know, their social life. And people are, um, in younger generations, are last minute buyers as opposed to, oh. you know, they don't, they don't plan for August of 2020. They're planning on a Thursday for Friday. You know, <laughs> what are we doing this weekend? And sometimes it's like, let's talk about it at the weekend. You know, it's yeah. a very last minute. You know, and in Chicago, obviously, we have, you know, 200 some odd theaters. So you're trying to figure out, I think, on an everyday basis in our field, like what makes each of us unique in a market that is so saturated. I think that's a challenge every day. I think knowing that there is a decline in earned revenue, I think some theaters try to figure out how can I create earned revenue without that being tied to ticket sales. So, you know, Looking Glass has their summer camp for kids, and some of us at Victory Gardens has a training center. Steppenwolf has the summer school. So we're, we're all trying to figure out, are there ways to earn revenue outside of ticket sales? I think everybody's trying to figure out if you actually make money on bars and cons- like 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 the 1700 space at, at Steppenwolf, or is it really just a break even, but it's a good place to gather. And so you have people in your the, space the, after the a show. Bar, right, the front bar right, right, right. So it's like, you know, I mean, I think there's been a ton of research and data done in the last few years, which frankly really says, and it's discouraging that we're just, we're not going to see the patrons back. We're just not that like, no matter what engagement activities you try to create, no one has seen like a significant shift in audience growth through those ancillary programs. So we're all trying to figure out how we can, you know, raise more contributed income because the ratio contributed to earn revenue, which used to be more 50-50, is now like 60-40. And especially for a theater of like our size where, you know, you're doing plays that are some of which nobody's ever heard of. It's new work. It's very risky. So how then... Do you keep the earn, the contributed revenue up? I think with corporate sponsorships being down, you know, you don't see corporations giving like they once did. So you're not um, going to be, become guaranteed rates, <laughs> Victory Garden anytime I know, soon. I know that guy. And if he wants to sponsor Victory Gardens Theater, Victor, just give me a call. Um, <laughs> you heard it here. <laughs> you heard it here. I know you, Victor. You may not know I know you, but I do. Um, <laughs> but uh, we went to a wedding together many moons ago. Oh. Um, not together together, but we right. were like 
together. At the same wedding. Yes, we were at the same wedding. Let me clarify that because I hope he would remember that maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, also government funding has shifted. Mm. I mean, we don't know year to year what's going to happen with the NEA, you know, yeah. under our current political climate in a state, in a city that year to year we find out if we've balanced a budget or what we can do. You know, it's, I mean, so you talk about government funding and you talk about corporate funding being at an all-time low. And while foundations, we do very well at Victory Gardens with foundations, oftentimes that comes with just a tremendous amount of work because you have to write reports and you have to do final reports and you have to do midterm reports and they want to see impact and you're trying to measure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it comes with a tremendous amount of work and is often restricted. It's not, you know, general operating support, which is what we also desperately want. We all just want a chunk of change to do what we want to do. And now it's like, well, we want to give you a chunk of change because you're doing such amazing work in, you know, the social justice area or in the accessibility area. And so then you have to use that money, you know, in that way. And most of the time they don't account for the staff that you will, they're not paying for staff on top of what they're, the project they're funding. So then you have to ask your current staff to, you know, stretch a little bit more to handle this project that you're getting funding for. So it's a, it's a catch 22. If the foundation support for everybody is, is wise, you really have to measure that as an institution. So people are seeing growth, I think in, in individual giving and specific people and events, you know, that's where most of us are. And I think people are trying to do a lot of capital support right now because you, you can raise money. People like the idea of long-term and legacy. So what can I leave with an, you know, can I leave my name somewhere with an institution? The growth of audience decline is, is challenging. I think um, it's, it is a, an interesting moment right now where, you know, social media is, is very present in our field. And there's lots of places where people can express themselves and, you know, engage conversations that sometimes you're like not aware are happening. And then you look at Facebook and you're like, oh my God, I didn't even know this was happening in my backyard. And I think a lot of my work on a daily, weekly basis is uh, making sure that we have policies and procedures in place that are protecting staff, protecting actors, making sure we're doing all the right things, making sure we're messaging the right things, you know, making sure that we're accountable to the work that's on the stage and off the stage. And it's just much more than it used to be, all of all of that. And so, you know, trying to find the balance of, in all of that, raising money every year. And it's a much more complicated job than it, I think it once was. Tell us about the latest production at Victory Gardens. We're oh, going to see it on Friday. I am so excited about Tiny, this show. Tiny Beautiful Things. Tiny Beautiful Things which is adapted from the book by Cheryl Strayed. And Cheryl Strayed wrote Wild. I think most people know that movie that Reese Witherspoon was in, and it's very much her life story. Nia Vardalis from My Big Fat Greek Wedding and two other artists adapted the book into a stage play about a year ago. Nia performed it in uh, New York in two iterations, actually, because it did well and brought came back. And then she also did it at the Pasadena Playhouse in Los Angeles. And now, luckily for everybody, other um, they're letting other artists in other cities do the play. At some point in her life, Cheryl Stray took over an advice column that was called Dear Sugar. <laughs> and so she agreed to anonymously answer, you know, advice letters that people were writing in. Obviously, she got some humorous, you know, funny letters. And she also got just letters from people 
pained and flawed and broken and sad and, you know, curious. And she wrote back with her fullest heart and really put herself, her, her husband in these letters, her experiences. I mean, she has had a really complicated life. She's very open about her heroin addiction. She's very open about her first marriage in the play. She's very open about Mr. Sugar, the the gentleman she married as her second husband in their relationship. And her kids, her mother died when when the mother was like 42, a very young age. So, you know, she's, um, and she's estranged from her father. So there's, there's complicated stuff that she manages to weave into all of her responses. And I think, you know, it's all about human connection and empathy and how in the age of social media and the age of the cell phone and the age of really challenging and difficult conversations, how we find connection with other human beings and how we create kindness. It's a beautiful, beautiful play. I've just finished reading the book also, and it's just, I mean, you you know, you're watching the play then and going, oh, this is that story, you know, so it's really funny. <laughs> and it's um, a Chicago premiere. It's a right? Chicago premiere. Vanessa Stalling, who I think is just an amazing director, she directed The Wolves last year at The Goodman, which was one of my favorite productions, and Photograph 51 at Court Theater. So she's been doing fantastic work lately. She's directing, and we have three other actors, four actors in it. It's led by Janet Ulrich Brooks who's a phenomenal actress, and she plays Sugar in the production. And then she is surrounded by um, Jessica Dean Turner, who I believe just did Red Rex at uh, Stephen Theater in the Lake most recently, a young person named August Foreman, who's just wonderful, and then um, Eric Slater. So it's a great, it's just, it's very simple. Vanessa's done a beautiful job weaving it. Audiences, we've had two, well, we've had three performances, probably one is happening right now. And the audiences seem to really be really moved and loving it. I, I can't imagine not laughing in points and getting teary in a point or two, depending on what you personally are bringing into the theater with you, which I think is always what's, there's, there's no way not to connect to this. And I will say both of these women, Cheryl Strait and Yev Vardalis, have been so generous. They have been tweeting and Instagramming about the production. Cheryl sent a selfie video that we're going to put out tomorrow. Like she did a phone video of herself oh, telling cool. people to come see the show. Right. Nia is talking to Chris Jones for us. Cheryl's talking to Heidi Stevens for us. You know, so it's, they've been very generous. And so when you read a play about generosity and the people that created it really are that generous, mm-hmm. it makes you go, okay, I can, I can stick around another few months, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, like yeah. just when right. you're feeling like, oh, yeah. what's yeah. happening in the world? You go, all right. Hopefully people will see this and push something forward, you know, whatever yeah, that means, you know, yeah. just, you know, you know, do something tomorrow that's kind for somebody else. Pay somebody Starbucks or Indeed. toll or something like that. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Right. You're married to right. an actor. I am. Did you ever cast him in anything? <laughs> You know what? I do Other than think. Husband. No, I, yes, that's his <laughs> most. It's most important role to me. Yeah. I have to say, I don't think I ever thought I would marry an actor. Um, I mean, I dated actors, um, which, very, which now very I don't know if I could do as easily as I did Erica, in the '90s. It's very brave. Well, it is very brave. <laughs> he wasn't an actor when we like. We actually we met uh, at Northwestern. We have a funny, lovely, sometimes <laughs> disastrous story. We met in you know Northwestern. We Back dated. We dated as ah. seniors, and then we like continued to date and break up 
like for 30 years. Do you know what I mean? Like, let's date. Let's break up. Let's date. I hate you. Let's date. Don't ever call me again. Let's date. And about six years ago, it was like, oh, we're still single and still doing this routine. Okay, let's date. He relocated here about six years ago, which did make like the breaking up not as necessary because we actually mm-hmm. were like in the same city and actually realized we really liked each other and didn't want to torture each other anymore. So he, he relocated from New Hampshire. He had been on the East Coast. He had done a little dabbling in acting in Boston and New Hampshire, you know, but not, not a lot. He was teaching music. He's a, he's a very talented guitar player. So he was teaching music and doing some, some corporate work. And then right when he decided to move here, he was like, what would you think if I started acting again? And I was like, oh, okay, well, let's see how that goes. It really was a let's see how that goes. Mm-hmm. So he moved, he moved here in like September of 2013. And I do think, if I'm remembering correctly, my, like my outgoing show at Steppenwolf was East of Eden. And I do think I, I cast him as understudying Tim Hopper to keep him busy knowing that like he could that that would be perfect and then you know he's done he's done a lot of it on his own which is um helpful for a marriage right I mean but you know I am married to an actor and so the ups and downs of a career that you you know as a I, I feel that as a wife like many other people in this city feel being married to an actor an artist it's um an emotional roller coaster Mm -hmm. Frank, I wanted to tell you about a show we went to recently. Oh, wow. Up at Writer's Theater in Glencoe, one of our frequent haunts. Uh, We went to see Into the Woods, the Stephen Sondheim musical, this one directed by Gary Griffin. Mm -hmm. It's marvelous. If you get a chance to go, you should absolutely get yourself up there. It's in the round. It's a three person orchestra (laughs) with like woodwinds, a piano player, and. An amazing percussionist who must have eight or nine arms, because I'm not sure how he plays all of that. Uh, he's actually a friend of mine. I'm not oh. sure how he gets it all done, but it's terrific. Is it the terrific. smaller space or bigger space? It's in the big space, the big space. and it's really quite something. It's one of the finer Sondheim revivals of shows that, mm-hmm. I, that I've seen. Have, have you been up there to I see it yet? I haven't yet, but I will get up there. Yeah, I, think you, I think you definitely should if you can. I know you're very busy. Do you get out much to the theater? Do you I see try. as much as you I can? I don't see as, a, as much as I used to. But, you don't um, see as much as you'd no, like, probably. No, either. no, it's hard. I'm there. I'm oftentimes you know, in our space greeting people at night, yeah, so it's, yeah. it's challenging yeah. to get places. Well, I can't recommend it highly yeah, enough I into the see woods. That. Erica, on our program, sometimes we play a little game called Chat Pack. It's kind of a parlor game. There are questions designed to stimulate conversation or a provocative answer. Frank, you like this game, don't you? Yeah, because I'm so provocative. (laughs) You're a deep well. I don't always know what you're thinking. These questions have been chosen at random by our producer. I don't, re- I don't really know what they are. Would you be interested in playing a round or two with us? Sure. Are you game? So I'm going to be game. Fantastic. Fantastic. Why don't you choose one of those? Okay. Read that off to us, and we'll all play. If, with your safety guaranteed, you could experience something considered very dangerous, what would you want to experience most of all? Frank? Well, I'd like to skydive. 
I've been wanting well, to take a hot that. air balloon. Yeah, but, but I also... your safety is yeah, not guaranteed. The, if the safety's guaranteed, then I would totally do it like tomorrow. Well, I think there's a risk in just about everything, but you know, people who skydive pretty much depend on safety first, don't you think? They do, but this would have a guarantee, so then I would be fine doing it. Would you want to go by yourself or strapped to a... Safety expert? guaranteed? I'd do it without the parachute. <laughs> it says safety guaranteed. Yeah. That's true. So I would do it. Wow, that's, that's pretty literal. You certainly know what I would do. Go swim with sharks. Exactly. <laughs> My oh. biggest fear in the world is sharks. Okay. I believe there are sharks in all bodies of deep water. Including his bathtub. Salty or non-salty. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, uh, I think swimming with sharks. With would, the guarantee. With the guarantee, yeah. absolutely. I think that that would probably be nice. Actually, you can do that. They thing. have cages that you can go down yeah, in, yeah, yeah. and there's doesn't, sharks yeah. peck at still you. still doesn't but. feel... I don't know. It still feels a little Well, as risky. Frank says, safety <laughs> guaranteed. Well, that's what I'm saying, yeah. right? I mean, if safety is guaranteed, but you, you free swim with them, right? Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, ride, ride the cage. <laughs> How about you, Erica? Oh, my gosh. It might be something like... Because, I, yes, I would like to skydive. I am also just, like, not good with heights, though. Like, so the skydiving and the bungee jumping, as much as, like, the idea of that is exciting to me, the, I think I'm, I'm just not good with heights. I am thinking, like, something with, like, wild animals. Like, being able mm. to, like, be in space and, like, pet a gorilla or a black bear or a tiger. Like, to really be in, like, a safari. Close like, and hanging close yeah. and not giving it any thought that this would be like, this could be dangerous if you get too close or something. I think that, I think, would be my thing. That would be great. That really would be. Yeah. Like Pet a tiger, right, a like, lion like, or something. Like, really yeah, do right it. Up close. And yeah. just be like, there's no reason this gorilla is going to do anything but just sit and, like, Enjoy. hang with me. Yeah. Right? Right, yeah. Because you're guaranteed. You're guaranteed, guaranteed. safety. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I like these. i got to call these yeah. people and see <laughs> well, how they set it so. up. Let's play one more. Okay. Yeah, you're picking again because you're the guest. All right, here we go, guys. It's a long one? No, it's just funny. If you could take any job for just one month, what job would you like to have? Assume that you would have the skills and knowledge to perform this Mm -hmm. job adequately. Mm -hmm. I know what I would do immediately. What's that? I, I would become a yoga instructor. Because I really like doing yoga. It's like the thing that has like really been good for me in the last five months, finding yoga. I'm not really? like good at it, but I love it. And I sit in yoga classes and I'm like, I wish I could just be a yoga. I mean, I, <laughs> like I just, how, how could I just be a yoga instructor and have my same quality of life? I don't think you could do that necessarily. Though. I'd do have you to, do the I'd ho- have to teach like 20 classes a day. Could do it as a side job. Oh, yes, in all my free time. In I'm all do your my free time. time. Right, right. Yeah. You could do it in the lobby. While you're doing all this other stuff, you could do yoga. I could just be doing yoga at the Victory Gardens lobby. In the I mean, lobby. Like, anyone oh, care yeah. to join? There's your money-making <laughs> thing. Namaste. We're doing yeah. yoga in the lobby. Victory Gardens yoga <laughs> That's right. offshoot. Everybody into Downward Dog before yeah. the play, please. Right. <laughs> you could make the whole audience do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 A little stretching. A little meditation. A little meditation before the show. Turn off your cell phones and let's do... Praying mantis, or whatever they call those things. I don't know. I did hear of a post today called Passing Wind, and uh, I want you to think about what that is. And they, they actually have a different name for it because they were like, we just couldn't say that. Does it encourage one to do That's that? That's what it was. It was to encourage, ah, you know, it's for, it was, it was yeah, of, yoga yeah. for digestion. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> exactly. 
Frank, do you have a, a, yeah, I do. a job? Yeah, you do? I'd like to be the uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and start knocking some heads. Oh. Mm-hmm. Wow. Throw my weight around, yeah. Throw your weight around, yeah. Fire some people, no mention of any names, but... Uh, With your safety guaranteed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. How about you? I've always wanted to try to be a fighter pilot. Ooh. Yeah, take a jet, you know, 700 miles an hour and mm. shoot down enemy aircraft. <laughs> I love that I, I went for like the peaceful, mindful, like <laughs> what could cause less stress in my life. I went and, to like total less stress, totally higher quality of life. Yeah. And you two were like the Betsy, most stressful job in the country. <laughs> and, yep. and fighter pilot. I'm like, oh. Erica, we finish every episode with a segment that has gone through a few iterations in its title, but by popular demand, I have to go back to my original segment title. Yeah, we've gotten some feedback. This is a a segment called "The Kiss of Death." (laughs) It is really a celebration of someone that has just passed. Today, I'd like to talk a little bit about someone who passed during the summer. Franco Zeffirelli. Are you a fan of Zeffirelli, I know his films, yeah. Franco Zeffirelli, Italian director renowned for his extravagantly romantic opera productions, popular film versions of Shakespeare, and his supercharged social life. Oh, Kind of like you, Frank. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Critics sometimes reproached Mr. Zeffirelli's opera stagings for a flamboyant glamour more typical of Hollywood's golden era, while Hollywood sometimes disparages films as too highbrow. But his success with audiences was undeniable. Mr. Zeffirelli's filming of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, fantastic film, thrilled millions of young viewers who had been untouched by the bard. I've made my career without the support of the critics, thank God, he said. A whirlwind of energy, Mr. Zeffirelli found time not only to direct operas, films, and plays past the age of 80, but also to carry on an intense social life. He was a friend and confidant of Maria Callas, Anna Magnani, Laurence Olivier, Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, Liza Minnelli, Coco Chanel, Leonard Bernstein, (laughs) you name it. He had him over for cocktails. Franco Zeffirelli was born in Florence in 1923, a product of an extramarital affair. In those days in Italy, this was fascinating, I did not realize this, children of purportedly, quote, unknown fathers were assigned surnames starting with a different letter each year. He was born in the year of Z. His mother chose Zeffiretti drawing on a word meaning little breezes heard in an aria in Mozart's opera Cosi Fantuti, a transcription error, however, rendered it as Zeffirelli. <laughs> How random. What a great name. Franco Zeffirelli. Yeah. Right. Sort of like an accident. But it's interesting that he would not get the mother's name. Well, right, that they didn't do that. They, yeah. they assigned you a surname based <laughs> yeah, on Yeah, you have to have a name alphabet. other than the... Yeah. yeah. He was taken to his first opera by an uncle at age eight and was so smitten by stage design that while his friends played games after school, he buried himself in his cardboard scenes for Wagner's ring cycle. Oh, my. <laughs> Wow. (laughs) In the late 1940s, the director Lucino Visconti spotted Mr. Zeffirelli, who was blonde and blue-eyed, working as a stagehand in Florence, a smitten Mr. Visconti. Gave him his big break in 1949, making him his personal assistant and set designer for his production of Tennessee Williams' A Streetcar Named Desire, which was the first staging of the play in Italy. But Mr. Visconti sought to undermine his protege's attempts to strike out on his own. Directing his first play, Mr. Zeffirelli was appalled to discover Mr. Visconti in the audience leading a chorus of jeers. Oh, Oh my gosh. Nice guy. Wow. 
Have you ever had the that? No, Anybody my mentor. I don't think any. Jeers. I don't think I've received courses of jeers <laughs> at least publicly. I mean, I, I there might it might be happening all over town right now. <laughs> the incident was uh, part of the long and painful breakup between the two men. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Zeffirelli established himself as an inspired director of operas and plays on the world's leading stages in 1960 at London's Old Vic. Zeffirelli directed a very young. Judy Dench in the oh celebrated oh, Romeo and Juliet. You don't hear a very young Judy Dench said very often. <laughs> but it was the film version released in the United States in 1968 that achieved superstar status for Mr. Zeffirelli. Costing a mere $1.5 million, the film grossed more than $50 million. Oh, well. Also extremely popular were his film adaptations of Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew with Miss Taylor and Mr. Burton. Mm-hmm. And Hamlet in 1990 starring Mel Gibson and Glenn Close. That's a very underrated oh. picture. Mr. Zeffirelli conceded that his misdirected 1981 film Endless Love <laughs> starring teenage Brooke Shields and Tom Cruise in his film debut would long be remembered as the butt of Bette Midler's classic Oscar night joke that year. That endless bore. Do you remember her saying that? <laughs> I, th- I think what she said there was a nomination from Endless Love from that endless movie, something like that too. From I that think she said. Bore. I remember that may have been on a different show, but she called it an endless movie. <laughs> she really didn't like Endless Love. Like Apparently, it. I don't no, think I ever saw it. It's not good, <laughs> and no. I don't blame her. It's a nice no. song, though. Setbacks could not obscure Mr. Zeffirelli's very considerable triumphs. Even later, allegations of unwanted sexual advances by some in the industry did not dim his extraordinary talents and contributions to the arts. Mm-hmm. When asked why Mr. Zeffirelli's production of Falstaff had endured at the Metropolitan Opera for almost four decades, Joseph Volpe, then the Met's general manager, said, Now, it may be said by those great minds in the opera world, can't the Met do any better than this? And my answer is, we don't want to do better than this. As far as I'm concerned, this is the best. Wow. Franco Zeffirelli, Italian director with a pension for excess. He was 96. 96. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, good, ripe old age. Yeah. Yeah. Booth One, Erica, as you know, is focused on giving the Chicago theater community a forum for telling their stories and sharing their passions. In fact, we are one of the very few outlets for that process. If you'd like to support Booth One in bringing you the best and lively conversation about the arts and popular culture and amazing guests like Erica Daniels, you can go to our website at booth-one.com. Mm-hmm. That's booth-one. O-N-E. O-N-E dot com. And click on the donate button. It's easy, it's quick, and it's tax deductible. See, Erica, even here, we're trying to raise funds. <laughs> it's endless. To it's never ending. Yep. I and while it. you're doing it, throw in some money for Victory Gardens, too. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. I'm really well, making a combo. That's sweet of you <laughs> to say. Very Why nice. Not? That's very nice. It's also tax deductible under our 501c3 status as a nonprofit entity. We'll be reaching out in other ways over the next few weeks to raise funding so that we can bring you another 101 episodes mm-hmm. of Booth One. Erica, it's an absolute pleasure to have had you on the show. Best of luck with the new production of tiny beautiful things Thanks. Thank and you. all of your productions this year and everything you do at victory gardens is always so splendidly produced and beautifully realized it's always a pleasure to go to your space thanks so much thanks for having me visit booth-one.com for prior episodes and more information about our program for booth one and erica daniels this is gary zabinski and frank taranjo saying so long and keep listening mm-hmm.